Okay, here we go. Wild Cards Part 2. So the, the genesis of this episode, <clears throat> as has been stated by Bruce Tim and the other producers, was that for years Bruce Tim had been wanting to do a show set in real time. And obviously we get that here with the clock that appears in the bottom left corner. Additionally, the, that sort of morphed into doing a take on reality shows. And as we see here, Joker basically has his own reality show, and the two concepts sort of intermingled somewhere along the way in the planning stages, and we ended up with a reality show-based, real-time episode. But the original genesis was that ever since Batman the Animated Series, Bruce Timm has wanted to do an episode set in real time. But he said that it proved to be quite a nightmare in in um, <clears throat> in execution because since they had the clock in the bottom left corner of the entire episode when they would when they got the episode back from Korea and found that it was a little bit more sluggish than they had hoped, they had to do some heavy work on it in editing. But of course, when you cut a few seconds out here and mix a few things around there, the clock in the bottom left corner is now going to be completely off. So just trying to strike the perfect balance between animation timing and the right timing of the countdown clock in the corner proved to be a real nightmare, apparently. And you can even see, if you if you pay attention to the episode, you can even see that the animation in, in quite a few places is not quite up to par, and I'll point out some of the more egregious areas as we come to them. One thing is sort of blink and you miss it here as part two starts, is that the clock actually jumps back a few seconds from where it left off at the end of part one to accommodate the fact that we see the explosion here a second time. Otherwise, of course, it wouldn't make any sense. Maria Canals is fantastic in this scene, too. One of those bad animation moments I talked about is coming up here. She's giving John CPR and his chest doesn't move, no matter how much she depresses it. And here in a second, when she actually starts to beat on him, like wham, it's still he's still completely still. There's no reaction from him at all. Right here. <laughs> He's like bashing in his ribs and he doesn't even budge. But this is pretty clever, I thought. Clear. And could really use something to cut through the treacle, and there comes Joker cutting through the treacle. Now the Royal Flush Gang as far as their history in the DC Animated Universe, is a little complex, but still quite interesting. The Royal Flush Gang, uh, from our perspective, made their first appearance in uh, the Batman Beyond episode, Dead Man's Hand, where Terry, in the future, obviously, 50 years in the future, encountered a team of thieves who fashioned themselves after playing cards, and whom Bruce mentioned had fought him and 
had been around decades earlier during his time as Batman. So what we see here is the original Royal Flush Gang. Now whether this is an earlier, an exactly an earlier version of the team that Terry later encounters, or whether the team that Terry later encounters is an offshoot of this, because they certainly seem to have very little in common, except for their name and their the style of their costumes. These these mutant type characters seem to have almost nothing in common with the vaguely British aristocracy upper class crime family that we see in Batman Beyond, so but they make light of this inconsistency in epilogue when there's another Royal Flush gang and Amanda Waller says, well, who can keep them all straight? Joker's design here, uh, much as it was in his earlier appearances in, uh, in Justice League, is not the original Batman the Animated Series character design, nor is it the version that appeared in the revamp episodes, the new Batman adventures. This is sort of a hybrid of the two, combining the detail of the first Joker design with the more streamlined, angular look of the new Batman adventures. This design first appeared in the Return of the Joker flashback and was later incorporated in the present-day continuity and the Joker's next appearance, from our perspective, in uh, Justice for All. The Royal Flush Gang here are voiced in a bit, a little bit of fun stunt casting, a little bit of a fun crossover, are voiced by the main cast of the Teen Titans animated series. For instance, King, there the guy with the goatee, is voiced by Scott Menville, who does Robin in Teen Titans. Ten is voiced by Carrie Payton, who voices Cyborg. This episode is a little remarkable in, the, in that it reunites Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill, and Arlene Sorkin. The three linchpins, if you will, of Batman the Animated Series. Now here Batman makes a reference to Joker once having given Harley up. Now whether he's referring to Mad Love, when Joker knocks her out a window and leaves her for the cops to find, presumably so that he'd stand a better chance of escaping, or whether he's referring to an event which we also saw alluded to in Trial, when we find out that at some point along the way Joker ratted on Harley in hopes of commuting his sentence. And here, Batman wants Harley to think he's knocked, she's knocked him out, but if you look closely, after she punches him, he falls down, he starts to get up, and then he comes down again, as if he's like, well, that's not going to knock me, oh, wait, maybe I should play dead. Now, I wish they'd found some way of ratcheting up the tension a little bit here, because it's it's a, a fun fight sequence, and it's, you know, it's good and everything, but you kind of forget the clock is there, and... At this point, you should be sort of biting your nails, thinking, oh my god, are they going to stop the bomb in time? But it kind of doesn't even enter your mind, or at least it didn't <clears throat> didn't enter into my mind. I was just watching the fight, and then I'm like, when Joker comes on and starts talking to Flash, I'm like, oh yeah, they there's a countdown, isn't there? So I wish they'd found some other way of drawing attention to it, maybe 
had the Joker have some sort of voiceover here and saying, you know, they're not going to make it, or maybe even have the Joker counting down once it reached 60 seconds or something, just found some way of tying it in so that the tension is constantly ratcheting up. From here on, it gets a bit tense, and the music picks up in its pace, and it, it starts to get a little more riveting, but still, I don't know. Now, Ten is supposed to feel no pain. He's clearly going, ah, when Superman's punching him. But, I don't know, he's supposed to feel no pain, and he he also is clearly invulnerable, so... I don't know. I mean, the two often go together, but that wasn't the way his powers were originally explained, so... Oh well, it doesn't really matter. Well, I don't think we got enough uh, Joker Flash banter. Being such wise asses, you'd think they'd, they'd have played that up a bit more. But this is a great Flash moment. And the animation, poor as it is in some other areas, is, is really good on the slow motion stuff here. Just the dust trail he leaves behind him, and the, the bit coming up in a second when he runs right by King, and you see King's eyes widen in horror right there as he sees what's about to happen. That's okay, Superman. It's not like he's going to need to breathe or anything. Ah, his head's still exposed. Superman and Flash have an interesting relationship in the series. Superman always seems to take no small measure of pride when Flash does something really remarkable, like a, a big brother or something. It's the same in... Uh, in a better world than a few other places. It's a simple thing I'm sure they were able to just do on the computers, but it still looks really cool. And the image the Joker's about to pull up here of the Justice League is based on a piece of promotional art. Except for some reason Superman and Wonder Woman have switched places. Now here Joke is about to launch into his big explanation of who Ace is and what her powers are and what it means for everybody watching. And in case I forget to mention it later, Dwayne McDuffie has gone on record as saying, in his opinion, no small amount of people were permanently affected by Ace's power. I forget whether he said thousands or millions, but... Officially, according to the writers, even though the Justice League stops the Joker, many, many, many people are never the same after being exposed to Ace's powers. Now, this whole thing is later referred to in Fearful Symmetry by General Hardcastle when he says that an early Cadmus project was involved, quote-unquote, those freaks that the Joker made up like playing cards. So this Sector 12 is clearly some sort of branch of Cadmus. the men and black people and so on. They say it's a government facility, but we're as yet unaware that this is tied into all the other government facilities we've seen on the different series. 
not sure if that guy is supposed to be modeled after Charles Xavier or not, but he's kind of the the headmaster of their little mutant school, if you will, so it kind of works. Now, given that the uh, Royal Flash Gang, or <laughs> just the Rat Man, people say, what the hell is the Rat Man doing there? What, what is this weird fat guy dressed as a rat? But I think that's supposed to be like an actual rat person, and the fact that we're seeing him is supposed to tell us that we're starting to lose our grip on reality. But anyway, um, when we learned that the Teen Titans voice cast would be voicing the Royal Flush King, a lot of people assumed that Tara Strong, who does Raven on Teen Titans, would be voicing Ace, the sort of quiet, goth-type character, you know, skinny as a rail, jet black hair, perpetual frown. You know, it, it kind of it fits. But what they ended up doing was they cast uh, Tara Strong as Queen, and Hinden Walsh, who plays Starfire on Teen Titans, as Ace. And Ace only gets like two or three lines here. She gets a much bigger role in Epilogue. But uh, it was an interesting choice that they allowed the actors to sort of play against type in that way. Now, I know Tara Strong is a very versatile actress. She did Batgirl and many other roles on the series. But when you're stunt casting in that way, you normally try to sort of play to type. But they, they went against that here, and it was sort of an interesting choice. Joker and Harley's first big spat since Mad Love. And he's about to smack her here in a second, which is... I'm not sure that we ever actually got to see him physically hit her, you know, with his fist in Mad Love. We saw her, saw him whack her with a big fish or something at the end of Mad Love, but this is the first time I think we actually see her, see him punch her. Thanks to the more lenient standards of Cartoon Network as compared to Kids WB or Fox. Now, true, we don't actually see it on screen, but I'm not sure they would have even been allowed to imply that he physically hit her before. Joker knows Batman so well, he knows that he's got to be nearby. Batman's theme right there. Now, this sequence, Bruce Tim said, didn't come out quite as good as they hoped either. It it didn't have the sort of realities breaking down, all bets are off, you know, almost nausea-inducing vertigo that they wanted it to have. It just sort of sat there. So they did some funky things in editing. They added some reverb to the characters' voices. They added that blur effect to the animation. And it really does help sell the whole I mean, just the wishy-washiness of it there and the blur really helps sell the moment. Now, what's interesting is that Joker says that Ace's powers wouldn't work on him because he's already crazy. Yet, as we're about to see in a second, he still keeps the the headband that dampens her powers. And, and why else do that unless he's worried about being affected by her power and then of course she zaps him later and and it has the exact same effect on him as it does on anybody else so does that mean that joker's assumption was wrong and that she can affect people even if they're already crazy or does that mean that the joker is not in fact crazy now if it's the latter then it's in line with what a lot of people have theorized about the joker which is that unlike many 
other Batman villains and like say Two Face or um, I don't know. Watch me now not be able to think of another example. Two Face. We'll just go with Two Face. Unlike Two Face, Joker might not actually be insane. He clearly knows the difference between right and wrong. It's just that he doesn't care to observe that distinction. He'll do what he feels like and play to his own whims regardless of whether it's good or evil. And so he's not out of touch with reality. He just doesn't really give a damn about reality. And so in that sense, is he really insane? Is he really that much different than Batman who simply plays by his own rules, the norms of society be damned? And of course, some people, some people might say that Batman is crazy too, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Mark Hamill's really good too as he whimpers in a second. Just a little squeak he makes there. Which again, I mean that he's he's afraid of being driven insane and you know, a, a man who's constantly flaunting his mirth and mayhem like that, you'd think would would revel in the opportunity to be driven even more insane if, if such a thing were possible, but he's clearly afraid of it. He, so, I don't know. It's, it's there for you to think about. Now, this episode establishes a, a really fun connection between Batman and Ace, which they then later play up in epilogue. It almost makes Ace seem like a Batman character when, in fact, she has nothing to do with Batman really, in the comics, the Royal Flush Gang were Justice League villains, and in as much as Batman was in the Justice League, they would have contact with each other, but this episode really establishes a connection that pays off later. And here we go. The big scene. I remember how jazzed I was after I saw this. I wasn't really into the Green Lantern. I mean, you know, the Green Lantern-Hawk-Girl romance. It's, you know, it's fun as far as it goes. It, uh, it added some extra depth to the series, made it seem more adult, and I was all for it in that sense, but I wasn't really emotionally invested in it. But after seeing this scene, it, it uh, really got me hyped about it, because it sort of made me realize all the possibilities of what they could do with the romance on the show. And of course, they tore all, it down, all, all of it down in the very next episode. This is almost a, a Joss Whedon-esque attempt to, as soon as the characters become happy, you know, Blow it all to hell. Now this scene um, caused quite a few disparate reactions from people. On one hand, you had the Green Lantern Hawk Girl fans who were delighted by it and thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. And on the other extreme, you had people who actually wrote hate mail to Cartoon Network, to Warner Brothers, and to Dwayne McDuffie. Uh, complaining that how dare you show a black man kissing a white woman on a children's cartoon show? How dare you expose our kids to this? And the stupidity inherent in that argument aside, it's, well, I mean, what can you really say about people who take that opinion? But the uh, there's a, a few other interesting things going on in this scene um, some people thought that they were talking about race when, when Hawkgirl says we're so different just look at us some people they were 
thought they were talking about the color of their skin, when in fact it seems clear to me that they're talking about the fact that they're of different species. When you're when you've got people of different species hanging around together, I would think race would become even less of an issue than it already should be. Also, the uh, the way he goes to take her helmet off and she stops him, and that little bit of animation where she stops him was actually sped up in post production. The little bit there where she tries to stop him, and the fact that we had never seen her without her helmet before in the series, led many to conclude that in Thanagarian culture, that sort of headdress, the helmet, is some sort of removing it is is only to be done with those with whom you are intimate, and that it's as much a part of privacy and standard Thanagarian apparel as, say, a shirt or <laughs> underwear would be to us, and that the fact that she allows him to take it off connotes that she now considers him to be very, very close to her, and, and she's ready to let him in to her life and, and become involved with him in, in every way. Now, this episode was never shown in reruns, I believe, and it led May to conclude that the the backlash, the hate mail, had in fact intimidated Cartoon Network to the extent that they didn't want to show it again. But whether that's true or not, I don't know. Thanks for listening.